0: In the early 20th century in Chicago, there were all types of new wealth. Many had large amounts of money, people who had never had money before. And there were those that looked to take advantage of the situation. One man is said to have made over $8 million in, well, not-so-legitimate means. One of his biggest crimes was made famous in a very successful 1973 film, His name was Joseph the Yellow Kid Wheel and I have his story in the 163rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
1: Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
0: Sunday it's time for coffee and I'm Jeff Kelly your host and storyteller well it's good to be back to doing a regular coffee with Jeff story how are you doing uh, don't don't answer I, I, I can't hear you well today's story is a rather long one so I won't ramble on too much but before we start I just wanted to remind everyone that today is rake Jeff's yard day I expect all of you to show up with your rakes in hand I'll supply the coffee. But now, let's get to the story.
1: This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. $500,000 to win. Lucky Dan, third race at Riverside. You heard me. Hold on, sir. get the manager. What's your problem? I'm putting half a million dollars on Lucky Dan to win third race at Riverside. Can't lay that off in time. Bet like that could break us. Not only are you a cheat, you're a gutless cheat as well. Where are the odds? Uh, four to one. Take all of it.
0: I never cheated an honest man, only rascals, he once said. They may have been respectable, but they were never any good. They wanted something for nothing. I gave them nothing for something. For many, the Yellow Kid is considered one of the most successful conmen men in history, perhaps only second to Charles Ponzi. His most famous scam was portrayed almost note for note in the 1973 film The Sting starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. He was born on Harrison and Clark Street in Chicago on July 1, 1875, to hard hard-working German immigrants. He grew up a good student who excelled at mathematics. However, his passion wasn't at school. It was at the horse race track. He would sneak there when he should have been in school, even though he had no money to bet. His name was Joseph Wheel, and at the age of 17, he dropped out of high school and began working for Chicago bookies as a collector. If you made a bet with one of these bookies and didn't pay, it was Joseph's job to find you and get the cash. The thing was, being a collector didn't pay all that much, and Joseph wanted more. He yearned to wear expensive clothes and eat fine food. In other words, he wanted to be rich. You see, he had watched his parents, who ran a grocery store, as he put it, struggle for their existence. And he didn't want that life for himself. While working as a collector, he saw how much money could be made with not-so-honest labor. This was in the late 19th century, a time where everybody seemed to be suffering from some sort of malnutrition, and tapeworm was a big problem. A man who sold a cure for tapeworm was Doc Merriweather. Mixed and bottled in a Chicago home by his wife with a combination of rainwater, alcohol, epsom salt, and cascara, which was a laxative, it was a powerful elixir, or so Doc said. Meriwether was a showman, salesman, and most of all a con man. He would hire Native Americans and dancing girls to help sell his formula that, in truth, was useless. Yet, at $1 for a tall 32-ounce bottle of his pleasant-tasting liquid, it sold well. While working as a collector, Joseph began running into Doc Merriweather and noticed that he had an exhaustible supply of money. One day, Joseph and Doc had a beer together, and Doc offered Joseph a job at three times what he was getting working for the bookies. He became part of Doc Merriweather's medicine show that would travel around to rural areas and sell the cure. It went something like this. During Doc's talk, Joseph would suddenly ask to buy two bottles. Doc would ask, Two bottles, sir? But one bottle should be good enough to get rid of your tapeworm. It was not for him, Wheel would say, but for his two children. You see, years before, he was so sick he couldn't walk, and doctors couldn't do anything for him. He was on the verge of losing the farm, he would say, before wiping a tear from his eye. Then I heard about Meriwether's elixir. I didn't think it would do me much good, but everything was lost anyhow, so I took it. Before I finished the bottle, my tapeworm had been eliminated. I was able to walk again. I got my strength back. Soon I began to recover. I felt so much better that I was able to do twice as much work. My crops were extra good. The mortgage was paid off. And I owe it all to Meriwether's Elixir. I'm going to give it to my two kids. And I'd buy it even if it was $5 a bottle. Doc Merriweather would be so touched by this story, he would give Joseph two bottles absolutely free. And after that tale, they usually sold every single bottle. You know, some might find it hard these days to believe that people actually fell for such a scam. But people still fall for it today. Perhaps someday I'll do an episode on homeopathy. Throughout most of the 1890s, Joseph Wheel worked for Doc Merriweather... But by 1899, he was ready for a change. His first scam, called the Hearth and Home, worked like this. He would walk up to a farmhouse dressed in fine clothes and knock on the door. A farmer would answer, and after a bit of small talk, they would get to business. He was selling a magazine called Hearth and Home, a magazine for the lady of the house. The farmer would quickly call his wife to the door. Soon they asked, how much? It was only 25 cents for an issue, Joseph replied. To sweeten the deal, a set of six shiny silver spoons would be added as a bonus if they were willing to purchase a year's subscription for a dollar. Joseph would explain that it was a losing deal for the magazine, but they hoped by getting a bigger audience, they could bring in more advertisers. But selling the magazine was only the first step. Soon Joseph would pull out a pair of glasses from his pocket. He would claim that he found the spectacles while walking down the road. Do you know anybody in your community that wears glasses like these, he would ask. The glasses were expensive looking, with what appeared to be solid gold frames. Handing them to the farmer, the farmer would quickly notice how easy it was to read the magazine with them on. Joseph would mention they're probably worth three or four dollars. Inevitably, the farmer would offer three dollars for them, saying that he would look for the real owner. For Joseph, it was obvious that the farmer was planning to keep the glasses for himself. In reality, the cheap glasses cost Joseph just about 25 cents, and the spoons, also cheap, cost about a penny apiece. So Joseph made quite a profit with the scam. Joseph Wheel was learning that people are always looking for something for nothing. In his autobiography, he wrote, The desire to get something for nothing has been very costly to many people who have dealt with me and other conmen, but I have found this is the way it works. The average person, in my estimation, is about 99% animal and 1% human. The 99% that's animal causes very little trouble, but the 1% human causes all our woes. When people learn, as I doubt they will, that they can't get something for nothing, crime will diminish, and we shall live in greater harmony. After a while, he switched to selling pocket watches. He paid less than $2 to have them manufactured, and had the words 14 karat gold stamped on the back. He sold them for as much as $50. The thing was, there was nothing illegal about this. At the time, there was no law against stamping anything you pleased on the back of a watch, so there was nothing a farmer could do even if he realized he had been scammed. Eventually, traveling across the countryside through the farming sections of Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin got old, and Joseph returned to Chicago to the racetrack. Besides, he had a fiancée, a girl named Jessie, back in the Windy City and was anxious to see her. Jesse, by the way, assumed he was an ordinary, legitimate, traveling businessman. Jesse, who he would marry, would eventually find out about his illegal ways for providing an income, and for the rest of their life together, would encourage him to go straight. For a short time after returning to Chicago, he considered life in the church. But when that didn't work out, he went back to committing various scams, such as fixing trials. But then he finally found a way to make some big bucks. His new scam started out with him posing as a horse expert, striking up a conversation with somebody who was looking for a sure thing at the track. He would offer his mark some inside information of a horse that just can't lose. The problem for Joseph, he would tell the mark, was that he had no money to bet. Soon a loan would take place, a large loan. And then, when the horse lost, and Joseph would make sure it lost by paying off the jockeys, he would apologize. I don't know what went wrong, he would say. Of course, as you might have figured out, no money was actually ever bet. That's why his horse had to lose. In 1903, he met a fellow named Frank Hogan, and for a short time the two became partners. A newspaper comic at the time was called Hogan's Alley in the Yellow Kid. It was from this that Joseph Wheel got his nickname, The Yellow Kid. When he made enough money, he was able to advance his horse racing scam. If you've ever seen the 1973 film The Sting, you'll completely understand this swindle. It's exactly what you see in the film. It starts out with what is called a storefront. A storefront was a fake off-track betting store. Everything in this store, the cashiers, clerks, telegraph operators, and gamblers are all part of the scam. There would be racing forms, betting windows, huge blackboards with racing results, a bar, everything. Not too much different from the off-track betting establishments we have today. The race results would come in over the wire, through Western Union, and people would listen to an announcer describe the race from start to finish. The Mark would be told by Joseph that he had a sure thing. You see, his brother worked for a Western Union and was in charge of passing on the race results. All his brother-in-law had to do was delay the race results for a minute or two, pass the name of the winner on to Joseph, allow him to make a bet, then release the results. It couldn't fail. And, of course, the Mark would make a small bet at first to test the system. And he would win. Soon the mark would get greedy and make a huge bet. But this time, the information about the winner would be a little vague, and the horse that the mark bet on would, of course, lose. Soon after the mark lost a large sum of money, a fake police raid or such would take place, and the mark would get out of there as quickly as he could. It was a very expensive operation to run, but very profitable when it worked. After making a lot of money with this complicated big store con, the yellow kid came up with something a bit simpler. He bought a stable and a few horses. He would tell investors he was looking to get into horse racing and that he had a horse that was sure to win but didn't have the capital to train his horses properly. Somehow, however, no matter how much money was invested, the yellow kid's horses never seemed to win. Of course, they couldn't win because if they did, Joseph would have to pay the investors their profits. Another scam he would do was to promise to get somebody a concession operation at the track or the job of repainting the stands. And while they were there, get them involved in a fixed horse race. Eventually, the mark would find out that the fixed race and his job at the park were both fake and he would lose a lot of money. The thing was, there was nothing he could do about it. Some did try to take him to court, but according to the law in Chicago at the time, if you were not an unwary stranger, and that you entered into a betting deal believing you would make a lot of money on a dishonest race, it was your own fault, and the cases were always dismissed. In other words, if greed gets you involved in a crooked deal, whatever happens, you've got to deal with it. This was usually the case, but not always. You see, everything was going great. He invested in businesses while he continued with his scams until he attempted to scam a woman named Madam Cleo. He ran his horse-tip swindle on her and got $2,500. But unfortunately for the yellow kid, she was the girlfriend of a police detective. The detective began making it very difficult for Joseph to do business. And after he started talking to some of his other patsies... Joseph was soon ruled to stay away from the racetrack for life. But he wasn't about to go straight. His next scam was in real estate, and then a stock market one followed, in which he sold worthless stocks for large amounts of money. Finally, with the encouragement of his wife, Jessie, he attempted to go straight. She was thrilled when he invested in a legitimate business. For this, he took on a new name, Richard E. Dorian. He teamed up with the owner of a coffee plantation who had no idea he was dealing with the yellow kid. Joseph's idea for selling the coffee was to include a coupon with each can. If one collected 150 coupons, they were entitled to a free gift, an upright piano. All seemed to be going good for the business until his partner discovered that Richard E. Dorian was actually Joseph the yellow kid wheel. And he backed out of the deal before a single can of coffee was sold. Joseph was very disappointed and depressed and wandered the streets not knowing what to do next. He described it as if he was walking away from a beautiful dream. While he was walking, he met a con man who went by the name of the Swede, and soon he was back in business. The yellow kid and the Swede did various small scams for a while until Joseph moved on to bigger things. You see, World War I was just heating up, and this brought on new opportunities for Joseph. Or so he thought. This was before the United States entered the war. He and a partner, Fred Deacon Buckmeiser, pretended to be two German businessmen who wanted to buy a factory for the production of war materials. They brought this idea to a bank president who owned a decrepit, empty factory and was more than happy to sell it to them. After the deal was set, Joseph began stalling things by saying that he was waiting to hear back from his superiors. It was during this waiting period that the real can began. Joseph let it be known that he owned a large block of stock in a little-known but very profitable mine. Eventually, the bank president would ask to buy some stock in the mine, and the more Joseph refused, the more loudly the bank president's demands would become. Joseph would eventually give in and sell him some shares, $50,000 worth of shares. Once they had the money, both Wheel and his partner skipped town. But this time they were caught, and Wheel was sent to 18 months in prison in Joliet. During the time he was incarcerated, he was a model prisoner, and he actually got time off for good behavior. Once released, with still over a million dollars in cash and real estate... He tried again to go straight, much to his wife's delight. He bought the Hotel Huntington, a six-story modern building with 215 rooms. He changed the name to the Shenandoah, but after he found out there was already a hotel named the Shenandoah, which he discovered after it blew up, he he changed the hotel's name to the Hotel Martinique. He spent his days as a hotel manager, but things didn't go right. Soon word got around that the yellow kid owned a hotel and the place began to fill up with conmen, swindlers, and other criminals. He said of them, most were small fry, who had no conception of honor or decency. They stole food and drinks, paid with bad checks, and often staged parties that became noisy. For some, the hotel became a sort of hideout. Joseph found himself losing money quickly and soon had to sell all his remaining property. Things got so bad that he began dealing in stolen bonds and stocks to raise cash. This led to a police raid, and this time he was sentenced to five years in federal prison in Leavensworth, Kansas. He entered prison in 1926. In his book, Weill described his time at Levensworth as enjoyable. He found if you had money, you could have a very easy time of it. He called it the Leavensworth Country Club. We skip ahead until the time the world was heading towards World War II. Again, Weill took advantage. He took on the name Dr. Ruel and approached a wealthy woman who wanted to sell some mining property in Arizona. Joseph convinced her that Germany needed a new source of copper for its war factories and that he should evaluate her mining properties for them. She agreed and hired him. She paid for his trip out west with a generous expense account, And it was a nice vacation for him. When he returned, he told her that he needed to go to Germany to deal with Adolf Hitler, and she agreed. In Germany, he actually tried to meet with Hitler. He received a refusal on official Nazi stationery. He used this to forge letters from Hitler and a German bank saying that they were interested in the land. When he returned, the woman wanted him to go back to Europe and continue the negotiations But Joseph refused. The world was getting very close to the Second World War, and he didn't want to be caught in Europe at the wrong time. The business between the two fell apart, and the yellow kid abandoned his scam and left town. Unfortunately, he left behind forged documents. The woman brought these to the police, and Joseph was found and sent to jail once again. It might have been because he had spent so much time in jail that he learned his lessons of sorts. After being released from prison in 1942, Joseph the Yellow Kid Wheel decided to go straight. Or at least, sort of straight. He wrote in his book, Since that time, no one has charged me with a crime. For a very good reason. After my term in Atlanta, I resolved that I would never again be involved in anything that might send me to prison. Now, I'm not quite sure how honest he was in his later years. I get the impression that he might have done a few small scams, but nothing that he could get jail time for. I'm not really sure. He said that he had nothing left of his estimated $8 million he got in his dealings. He also mentioned that his wife gave up the idea of reforming him. In his autobiography, he didn't give too many details about his marriage. In fact, he never mentioned his wife's name. But I get the impression that his wife stayed with him until one of their deaths. In the book, Hosters and Hucksters, by Thomas Striegolf, Joseph took a job as a telephone solicitor, using his charm to raise money for charities, politicians, and church funds. In 1948, at the age of 70, he co-wrote his memoirs with W.T. Brandon, the autobiography of an American master swindler. In it, he wrote, All the people I swindled had one thing in common, greed, the desire to acquire money. But that's not always enough. In numerous cases, there had been other factors, some small desire that helped me clinch a deal. Trivial matters often meant the difference between success and failure for me. There's a story of his 99th birthday party at a nursing home in Chicago, where a Chicago reporter attended. There was cake, singing, and much senior good fellowship. When the party was over and he thought no one was watching, the kid swiped an extra box of candles. He died on February 26, 1976, in Chicago, Illinois, at the age of 100. Sure, I'm a con man, the best, he once said, but I've always taken from those who can afford the education, and I never took everything they had. Never sent them to the river. That's my
1: motto. Chicago was the place to be in 1936. In those days, the big con was a dying art, until a first class grifter on the land from the FBI and a young gaffer from Joliet joined forces to con the Big Mick. He's not as tough as he thinks. Neither are we. Has anybody got a match? Thanks! Now I can light an old gold and listen
0: to The Sad Sack! A little bit before I go, I wanted to clarify my comments about The Sting. The film itself was based at least partially on the 1940 book The Big Con about real-life tricksters Fred and Charlie Gondorf. But the idea of the horse race bit seems to have been taken directly from Joseph's autobiography. In fact, according to the United Press, on June 12, 1976, the authors of The Life Story of the Late Conman Joseph Yellow Kid Wheel filed a $50 million suit against the producers, stars, and distributors of the hit movie The Sting, including actors Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and Robert Shaw. Of course, Joseph Wheel had passed away by then, so the suit was filed on behalf of the author William T. Brannan, who accused the defendants of violating the book's copyright and replicating Wells' escapades without consent. I have no idea how this lawsuit turned out. And now, the ending credits. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. You know, the ones that support the Saikon Network. You can be one of the good and proud by visiting Psychon.fm. that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of Saikon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find some amazing podcasts at Saikon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas for the show are always welcome. Please, come on, help me out. If you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help me financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a friendly comment or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at PsyCon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the PsyCon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to everybody who listens to the show, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You truly have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee,
1: coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, with Jeff. Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl. The dawn of just new day. Coffee with just coffee or coffee with just coffee with just coffee or coffee with just. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all. Just wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with just coffee. Want coffee with just coffee with just coffee.